If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Job, chapter 18. Job, chapter 18. We're studying the book of Job, in which a man who has suffered great loss finds himself being scolded by his friends. They believe that the terrible things that have happened to him are his fault. They are the result of some great sin that he has not owned up to and that he refuses to own up to. And so they give their arguments as to why they think this is the case. And in the process, they just savage him. They are brutal. They attack him with verbal violence. And the question is why? If they're his friends, why do they do this? It is because his existence is a threat to their theology, to their view of things, to how they think things are. And in the process, as we've seen and we will see today, there is no grace. Generally speaking, it's not the case today. Job uh, responds in two ways. First of all, he answers his friends, and then he turns to God in prayer. But as we've seen, it's not what we normally think of as prayer. It, in many ways, almost an assault on God. But it's, Job trusts that God, in fact, can handle this that Job can ask God the hard questions and God will not be offended. Several weeks ago, I suggested that for some, the friends, the miserable comforters, represent not other people, but an inner conflict within us in which we may, in fact, find ourselves struggling to figure out why things are happening to us. We're not asking other people, and other people aren't giving us advice. Within ourselves, there is this conflict, why are these things happening to me? And I would suggest to you that the response oftentimes is twofold. First of all, there is a a self-castigation, if you wish, where we just rip ourselves to shreds, and there is no grace. There's no place in our argument for the grace of God. But the second response is to turn to God in prayer. And if we, in fact, turn to God in prayer, we will find ourselves on a roller coaster ride, as Job did, where we have anger and agony, depression and doubt, hostility and futility. One moment speaking with great faith as Job did, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And the next moment with despair. Surely, O oh God, you have worn me out. You have devastated my entire household. You have bound me and it has become a witness. My gauntness rises up and testifies against me. God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. My opponents fasten on me his piercing eyes. And then, then after that, there is great faith again. If only you would hide me in the grave and conceal me till your anger is past. If only you would set me a time and then remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my change to come. And then despair comes again. But as a mountain erodes and crumbles and as a rock is moved from its place, as water wears away stones and torrents wash away the soil, so you destroy man's hope. You overpower him once for all, and he is gone. You change his countenance and send him away. So great faith and then great despair, just up and down. And I, I think this is not 
to be seen as unusual or weird or strange. I think this is what it means to be a child of God as God wrestles with us, as he deals with us, and we cannot understand what he is doing. In Job's case, you might imagine that this will come to an end, and yet it goes on. Job's friends still are hammering away at him. Today, it's Bildad's turn. Bildad's position is that of protecting tradition. And one of the things that is confusing is that Bildad is not completely wrong. This, I think, causes confusion on our part. His point is that God is the judge. He punishes wrongdoing. And this is true. But the reality is that one day in the future, we will all stand before him and he will, we will be judged by him. But in the meantime, we should recognize God's patience, God's mercy, and the nature of his long-suffering. In Bildad, the second friend, we have no sympathy. We hear no sympathy for Job in his condition. In fact, in this particular response, Bildad raises the confrontation to a point beyond resolution. This cannot be resolved. There can be no reconciliation with Job. One commentator is called Bildad the hatchet man. Under the guise of defending the truth, Bildad would not hesitate to tie Job to the stake and then light the fire himself. Whatever bond, whatever affection, whatever sense of obligation of being a friend, that's gone. Bildad has one goal, and that is to tell Job to shut up. Stop talking, Job. In the second speech, there's nothing new. If there is a difference, it is that in the first speech, the first speech Bildad held out hope that Job might repent, that he might be restored. Here, no. It is rigid. It is unbending. Job is finished as far as Bildad is concerned. Look, if you would, the first four verses of chapter 18. Then Bildad the Shuhite replied, When will you end these speeches? Be sensible and then we can talk. Why are we regarded as cattle and considered stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself to pieces in your anger, is the earth to be abandoned for your sake? Or must the rocks be moved from their place? See, Bildad is annoyed and he is offended at what Job has said. And like Eliphaz, he just wants to know, Job, when will you finally shut up? Job is supposed to stop talking. You see, in the ancient world, there was a belief that a person who talked too much was not wise. And since Job is talking, well, he's answering each of the friends. Each friend has a thing to themselves. But Job responds to each one. It sounds like he's talking way too much. So he needs to stop talking. Bildad is saying, in essence, if we're going to have a successful dialogue, Job, you need to stop talking. Well, how can you have a dialogue if only one person is talking? It's a monologue, not a dialogue. In verse 3, we find something about Bildad's state of mind that we did also with Eliphaz and Zophar. He's not listening. Job did not call them or regard them as cattle. He did not consider them stupid. He does question their wisdom. But they're not really listening to what Job is saying. At the beginning of verse 4, he says, you tear yourself to pieces in your anger. 
And this, I think, recalls something that Job said earlier in chapter 16, verse 9. God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. And Bildad is saying, no, Job, God's not doing that. You're doing it to yourself. And then in the last part of verse 4, Bildad asks two rhetorical questions, which expect a negative answer. Is the earth to be abandoned for your sake, or must the rocks be moved from their place? In the ancient world, and certainly in Bildad's view, it was believed that there was a connection between the moral order of things and the natural order of things. The moral order of the universe is essentially, completely, and fundamentally related to, tied to the natural order of the universe. So if you ask for a change in the moral order of the universe, then basically you're asking for a change in the natural order of things in the universe. I think this is the point that Bildad is trying to make. What Bildad hears Job saying is he wants the rules to change. God, why are you doing this to me? And Bildad's well, I know why God's doing this. You are a great sinner. And Job's like, no, God needs to stop doing this. And Bildad's like, if God breaks the moral rules, the, the, the moral order, then the world's just going to spin out of control because the two are tied together. I think we need to stop and consider what's being said here because this view of reality runs so counter to what most people think today. It's counterintuitive to most people today. In part because generations before us made a strong distinction between moral and natural. This happened before we came along, several centuries ago with the Enlightenment. The moral order of things is seen as man-made, that human beings make up these rules. So you have social contract, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and all that. Um, So for them, moral order is separate, and then the natural order of things is something quite separate. And by the way, I'm referring to it as the natural order of things, but we should see it for what it is. It's creation created by the creator. Well, when they got rid of the creator and saw it merely as nature, then it became something separate from the moral order, which comes from God. That's man-made or God-made, but it's just completely separate. So what we have today is that if you say something is right or wrong, people say, well, that's your opinion, because morality is seen as man-made. When you speak of the natural order of things, and people are like, okay, now we can talk. We can do science, as Dave has preached to us about. We can do the science thing. But the morality thing, that's simply something that is man-made. So in the modern world, we have a dichotomy between value, that's the moral, and fact, that is the natural. To speak of the moral order of the universe and the natural order of the universe in the same breath is heresy in the modern view. To connect the moral order of the universe and the natural order of the universe is viewed as completely unacceptable. So much of what Bildad says here sort of goes over the modern person's head because they do not connect morality, the moral order, with creation and the way that God has made things. I think another reason, let me just say this, I've got it in parenthesis in my notes, that If you connect the moral order with the natural order, people say that's unacceptable, unless it's something that they like. 
And then they're like, well, yeah, you know, that's the natural order. And so this, anyway. A second reason why we need to consider this is because modern technology often allows us to temporarily escape the consequences of our actions. In the ancient world, if you did something that was wrong, as, as the comforters have told Job, you will suffer the consequences, okay? Well, modern technology in many ways allows us to escape these things. So, take something as basic as taking care of your teeth, which in my younger years I did not. Um, but dentists have fixed the problem. So, in many ways, I'm not suffering the consequences of my past behavior. If I'd lived 200 years ago, I probably wouldn't have a tooth in my head, okay? But modern technology has allowed us to escape the consequences of our actions, okay? So I think we have reached a point in time, in my opinion, where we feel a freedom to do as we please and that it can be repaired later on, okay? And this reinforces the gap between morality and the natural order of things. There's a third reason why we need to think about this, and it is because God in his grace and mercy oftentimes holds back the consequences of our actions. This goes all the way back to Eden, when God told them the day you eat of that, you will surely die. And they did not die physically that day. In fact, Adam lived to be 930 years old because God in his grace held back the immediate consequences of their actions. So is there a connection between moral order and natural order? Absolutely. But God in his grace oftentimes withholds those or he postpones them that we might turn back to him in repentance. If we would think about it in our own lives, there have been times when the consequences have not come home. As the psalmist so wonderfully put it, we heard it in the promise of forgiveness today, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. In the natural realm, the consequences of our immorality have not come home because of God's grace. And this may be mistaken for evidence of a lack of connection. See, they're two separate things. For Bildad, there absolutely is a connection, and we must agree with him. Remember, Job's friends do say some good things, which makes it difficult. And if all they said was bad, then we could deal with it. But they say some good things. But his view, Bildad's view, is very narrow. It is limited, and it's really distorted because of the limits. He says, Job is suffering, so he must have some, done something wrong or he is a wicked man. Secondly, God is limited in his options on how to deal with Job. God can only act in one way. In other words, Bildad is putting limits on God. And thirdly, Bildad is not suffering because he must be a good man. He must not have done anything worthy of punishment. You see, Bildad has a small view of Job, does not allow the benefit of the doubt, there is no grace in his view of Job. He has a small view of God. God cannot choose how he will act toward anyone. And grace is not an option. 
and he has a rather grand view of himself. He's done nothing really wrong, and so grace is not needed. So there is no grace for Job. Grace is not an option for God, and grace is totally unnecessary for Bildad. The rest of the chapter, from verse 5 to the end of the chapter, is really just uh, an elaborate listing of the consequences that come on the wicked, that is to say, on Job. Verse 5, the lamp of the wicked is snuffed out, the flame of his fire stops burning, the light in his tent goes dark, or becomes dark, the lamp beside him goes out. Here, Bildad is describing consequences using Proverbs from the ancient world. We hear this in uh, Proverbs 13.9, the light of the righteous shines brightly, but the lamp of the wicked is snuffed out. And then he gives a series of metaphors for being trapped. Verse 7, the vigor of his step is weakened. His own schemes throw him down. His feet thrust him into a net. So there's a net. He wanders into its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare holds him fast. A noose is hidden for him on the ground. And a trap lies in his path. And it just goes on and on. And rather than sort of going verse by verse and explain, just listen as I read this. And listen to what Bildad is saying. Verse 11, terror startle him on every side and dog is every step. Calamity is hungry for him. Disaster is ready for him when he falls. It eats away part of his skin, uh, parts of his skin. Death's firstborn devours his limbs. He is torn from the security of his tent and marched off to the king of terrors. Fire resides in his tent. Burning sulfur is scattered over his dwelling. His roots dry up below and his branches wither above. The memory of him perishes from the earth. He has no name in the land. By the way, just parenthesis here. Verse number 17 may not ring true for us because we have pictures, we have videos, we have all the modern technologies. It's like, no, people will know about me a hundred years, a thousand years from now because there's a picture of me. Um, and I th- I think Bildad is saying something very important. Verse 18, he is driven from light into darkness and is banished from the world. He has no offspring or descendants among his people, no survivor where once he lived. Men of the West are appalled at his fate. Men of the East are seized with horror. Surely such is the dwelling of an evil man. Such is the place of one who knows not God. Summarize this, Job, you're toast. Okay, it's finished. It's over for you. Okay? You're a wicked man. And all the things that Bildad has just described, these are the things that are going to happen, have happened, are happening to Job. And there is no salvation. There is no redemption. The last line is, such is the place of one who knows not God. You think you know God, Job? You haven't got a clue. So how do you answer this? How do you answer a graceless tirade How do you answer when someone says these things against you? And by the way, again, if you accept my view that this is possible even within our own hearts, this inner conflict, how do you answer that accusation which has no grace to it? Well, as I said, Job does not speak to God here, but we hear great faith at the end of what he says in chapter 19. First of all, he complains against his friends. Then Job replied, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. 
By the way, here, Job is not just speaking to Bildad. The you is plural. He's speaking to all three friends. And it's like, how long are you going to keep this up? Tormenting me, crushing him with words. Uh, What's the saying? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Yeah, words can do great damage. They are crushing him. They have rebuked and admonished him ten times, which can be taken one of two ways, either figuratively, ten is the number of completeness, or literally, that we don't have all the speeches. This is simply a compilation of some of the speeches that these friends hurled at Job. They've shamelessly attacked him. But beginning in verse number four, Job goes off track and he makes what appears to me to be two huge mistakes. He gets something right, but he makes some really bad mistakes. Verse four, if it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. The first mistake that Job makes is he tells his friends, if I've done something wrong, that's my problem, okay? That's between God and me. You guys have nothing to say about that. You're not included in the equation. Um, In one way of thinking, we might say that Job is making real sense, that any sin we commit is between us and God. God is the judge. He alone knows the true extent of our guilt. Even we do not. Sin is breaking God's law, so we must answer to the God who gave us his law. But on the other hand, Job is wrong. One's sins do involve and affect others. And they shouldn't simply be thought of as a personal matter. If nothing else, if Job is guilty of doing wrong and God is dealing with him, it has affected his children. They're dead, all ten of them. It has affected his servants. Most of them are dead as well. The biblical view is a record of how individual sins profoundly affect not only themselves, but others, sometimes many others. I could give you many examples. I'll just mention one. That's Achan. I don't know if you remember the story of Achan in the book of Joshua. Um, the Israelites have come across the Jordan River and the first major city is Jericho. And so God gives them instructions. They're supposed to march around the city once uh, the first day and they do this and then at the end seven times and blow the trumpets, the walls will fall down. And in fact, they did. But God tells them very specifically, don't take anything out of the city, okay? Gold, silver, anything, that belongs to me. It is to be sacrificed to God. They're not to take anything. But there was one person one man, Achan, who in fact did take something and hid it. He dig, dug a hole in, his, you know, in the ground under his tent and hid it there. Israel goes to battle the next town, which is a small town, like, hey, we can do this, you know, easy peasy. And they go and they are routed and men die. So Israel's like, what's happened? And God tells Joshua, somebody sinned. And if you look at Joshua 7, it says, but the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. And it was like, no, no, only Achan. Not even his family, just Achan. No, it affects everybody. It affects the entire nation. So, now this raises the issue of, um, will God punish me for somebody else's sin? And that's another series in and of itself. 
But it should impress on us that there is no such thing as personal sin, which does not affect others. The point is driven home in the New Testament, in which we are told that as the church, as the people of God, we are a body. And when one part of the body messes up, it can in fact affect the whole body. So we shouldn't say, as Job did, hey, if I sinned, he doesn't think he has, but if I have, uh, that's none of your business. This is between me and God. And we say, no, Job, uh, you are wrong. I think culturally this is harder for us to accept because in the 19th century, in this country, there began to be a separation between the idea of communal worship and personal worship. I think the pandemic is really testing those issues right now. But suddenly religion became a very individual thing. And so the idea that your sin may in fact affect the body, may affect your fellow members of the church, just really sounds strange to us. And I think we might say, yeah, we like what Job has to say, but Job is wrong. The second mistake he, that he makes is he tells his friend, God has wronged me. In other words, God is wrong and I am right. And Job is on really thin ice at this point. Who is he to accuse God of being wrong? In Job's mind, if God is doing all these horrible things to him, and for Job, there cannot be anyone else who is doing these things, and it is response to some horrible thing that Job has done, then God is wrong. Um, we know from chapter 1 that this is done with God's consent, that the accuser has done all this. But we should be aware of the truth, be aware of the truth that all of us are worthy of death. All sin is worthy of death. So whatever Job is suffering is not outside the realm of justice. We shouldn't say this is unjust. Um, no, sin brings death. So anyway, Job is wrong. He continues in verses 7 to 12. We'll see this in a minute. What does he get right? If you look at verse number 5, he calls into question the motivation of his comforters. He says, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. I think Job's situation recalls the words of David in Psalm 35. May all who gloat over my distress be put to shame and confusion. May all who exalt themselves over me be clothed with shame and disgrace. If we go back to the first mistake, if I've committed a sin, it's between God and me. Job may be right in a sense in saying that because those who are speaking to him are graceless. They are without grace and they have exalted themselves. They are not trying to comfort him. If anything, they are trying to rip him to shreds. The second part of chapter 19 is a complaint against God's hostility. And we'll go through this briefly till we come to the end. Verse 7. Though I cry, I've been wronged, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. 
Simply put, God is treating Job as an enemy. God is the general of the opposing army, and they're coming against Job. Um, There's no justice here. There's no light, no honor. There is ultimately no hope. And then Job complains again about complete alienation. Verse 13, he has alienated my brothers from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. We certainly have seen that. My kinsmen have gone away. My friends have forgotten me. My guests and my maidservants count me a stranger. They look upon me as an alien. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped with only the skin of my teeth. In addition to all the things that God has done against Job, physically, he's also socially alienated Job from everyone from his relatives, his companions, his servants, his fellow citizens, his intimate friends. Yeah, Job is alone. So in verses 21 and 22, we have a plea for help. Have pity on me, my friends, have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Job doesn't turn to God here, he's turning to his friends. He believes that they are acting toward him the way that God has acted toward him. And he pleads for help. But now we come to the bottom part of the roller coaster. And now we're going to be going up again. We have faith that emerges at this point. Verse 23. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you say, how will we hound him since the root of the trouble lies in him? You should fear the sword yourselves, for wrath will bring punishment by the sword, And then you will know that there is judgment. See, at this point, at the deepest point of despair, Job speaks in faith. The point of darkest and blackest despair, Job speaks in faith of the source of grace. I see Job in this passage reaching out for divine grace. Grace as in redemption, grace is found in resurrection. But I think at this point, we've been going through, this is our ninth sermon in in the book of Job. Um, I'm reminded of Princess Bride. You keep using this word. I don't think it means what you think it means. We keep using the word grace, but what in fact does it mean? It's one of those words that is carelessly thrown around, oftentimes with people not considering what it means. Grace is the undeserved blessing or kindness freely given by God. Immediately, this raises the question, why should Job expect, or why should we, for that matter, expect any sense of grace from 
our fellow humans. If grace is something that comes from God, if it is his undeserved kindness, then why should I expect it's from God? Why should I expect it from my fellow human beings? We need to make a clear distinction between grace and graciousness. Grace is that which is given. Graciousness is, in fact, an attitude. In a real sense, none of us can give grace. Only God can. But we can, by God's grace, have a spirit of graciousness. This only comes with an awareness of God's grace in our lives. So, we may conclude that one who does not demonstrate a spirit of graciousness, a la Job's friends, either has not received grace from God, okay, and therefore they cannot be gracious, or he or she has forgotten that he or she is a recipient of grace. So either they have not been given grace by God or they have been given grace and they have forgotten that what they have is undeserved kindness from the hand of God. I think we may also conclude that one who has not received grace from God does not recognize any need of grace from God. This seems to be the case with Bildad. We're reminded of the words of Jesus, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. And the reality is we are all sinners. But there are those who see themselves as righteous. I would say this is Bildad. They do not see themselves in need of God's grace. Again, this is Bildad. And therefore, they will not receive God's grace. And they will not be gracious. Let's go back to Job and his search for grace. In verses 25, 26, and 27, we hear amazing words coming from a man who has suffered so much. He still continues to suffer greatly. Verses 22 and 23 might be seen as wishful thinking. Okay? If you look at verses 22 and 23, um, Oh, or verse 23, oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they might be inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. It's like, I wish that this were the case. When we get to verse number 25, it's no wishing. He says, I know. As one author put it, Job abruptly breaks off his wishful thinking and proclaims his deepest conviction with the heading, I know, Job affirms that his conviction is firm and decisive. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed yet in my flesh, I will see God, I myself will see him, with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. In these words we find grace, and it is grace in the person of a Redeemer, present, I know that my Redeemer lives, is living, right now. And then later, we hear of the resurrection. Something will happen in the future. The person of the Redeemer is something that we may be somewhat familiar with. We went through the book of Ruth. It tells the story of Boaz, who is a kinsman Redeemer. And we discussed that. Um, someone who, in fact, acts on behalf of another who delivers and restores what was lost to another person. 
So is it surprising then that Redeemer is one of the titles given to God, the one who redeemed Israel out of Egypt? In this passage, this is how Job identifies God. He is the one who redeems. We shouldn't pass over this too quickly. We will miss something really important. Job doesn't merely think of him as a redeemer, but he uses the word that is used in Hebrew as goel, a kinsman redeemer. Someone who is my kinsman who will redeem me. He's not simply one who redeems, but one who has a relationship with us. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews wrote, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. They're related, they're kinsmen. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Redemption involves kinship. One author has pointed out that Job doesn't want to use the title or the word witness or umpire or even judge, but rather he speaks of a kinsman, someone who will redeem him. It's really quite profound. But there's more. As I said, the Redeemer is living. This is in contrast to Job, who is still alive, but barely. He's near death. I think Job is afraid of dying. It seems that it's very near. Job says his Redeemer is alive. And even if Job should die at this point, one day eventually he will, but at this point, if Job dies, his Redeemer will survive him and will be able to restore him. And his Redeemer will stand up for him. The language is that of a witness in court. The Redeemer will give testimony in Job's defense. By the way, the phrase there, in the end, doesn't necessarily mean the end of time. Um, But it indicates that either God will act as a Redeemer before Job dies or after he dies. Opinions are divided. Some think that Job is saying he will be vindicated before he dies. um, And therefore he would see God... Uh, in spite of his horrible physical condition. Um, There are those who think that he is pointing to the resurrection. One could argue, two sides of a coin, that in great suffering we either do not see clearly or sometimes we see really clearly. We're just given a clarity of thought that comes only in the midst of suffering. I think that Job sees something quite clearly here. He sees the possibility of resurrection. And immediately people are like, no, Damon, that's, that's a New Testament thing. That's not Old Testament. And you know, we think Job was even before Moses and all that, before the law was given. How would he know about resurrection? Um, two things need to, you need to consider. First of all, believing precedes understanding. And complete understanding is not possible. So you would say to me, Damon, Job could not be speaking of the resurrection. He doesn't know about Jesus, that Jesus was raised from the dead. He doesn't know these things, so he can't be thinking of the resurrection. Let me ask you, you know about the resurrection. We know the New Testament. We know the story of Jesus and all that. Do you understand the resurrection? Do you have complete understanding of the resurrection? Then why is it that we expect that of Job? I think that in great faith... um, as was the case with David when his son with Bathsheba was sick and, and he prayed, he fasted for seven days and then the child died and then he said, okay, 
I need to clean up and eat. And people are like, you didn't eat? You laid on the ground for seven days? Now that the child is dead, you get up? He's like, well, I know that he can't come to me, but I will go to him. I and mean, then there's this, Dave, David, do you really understand what you're saying? Maybe not fully, but there is great faith here. The resurrection of the body is only possible because of divine grace. We don't hear any of this graciousness in Job's friends. Well, because they think Job doesn't deserve it. Well, who does deserve grace? Secondly, they don't think that is a a real option for God. And they don't think they need grace. So take that off the table. I don't know whether or not they have received God's grace or if they have forgotten, but they are not gracious. But Job has received grace and he is gracious because if you look at the last two verses of the chapter, is he in fact not being gracious? If you say, how will we hound him since the root of the trouble lies in him? You should fear the sword yourselves for wrath will bring punishment by the sword and then you will know that there is judgment. I would say there is graciousness here. He's like, guys, you need to back off. You need to understand that judgment is very real. Some might say, well, Damon, this doesn't sound very gracious. Um, But graciousness does not mean excusing what someone does. Okay? The principle here is clear. That when a graceless person speaks gracelessly to us, we should turn to the source of grace. And that is God. And having received grace, we should respond graciously. Some people make that very difficult. Job's friends certainly do. And yet we hear him responding graciously to them. We hear this throughout the New Testament. Paul said, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary... If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then in 1 Peter, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. In the midst of looking for graciousness from his friends, Job instead finds grace in the person of the Redeemer, in the reality of the resurrection. And that grace has come into his life as seen in the fact that he then in turn responds graciously to his supposed friends. In verses 23 and 24, because Job anticipates that his friends will fail him, he wants some way to defend his integrity. He may die before this happens. He wishes somehow that someone could write this down, not on a scroll, but on a piece of iron on a rock, so that even after he's dead, it will survive. That's his wish. But then a moment of clarity comes and he says, I know. I know that my Redeemer lives. 
I think in this chapter, at the end of it in particular, we see the big difference between Job and his friends. They are people of calculation. It's all a numbers game for them. If you do something bad, something bad will happen to you. That's, that's all it is. And God is, if you wish, um, limited by universal mathematical principles that God can only act in a particular way. And as a result, I would say there is a barrenness, there is an aridity, there's a dryness. What there is is no relationship. It is an, an uh, impersonal universe that they live in. Job, on the other hand, is taking a different view. For him, it is a personal universe. God is his redeemer, his relative, his kinsman redeemer. And he speaks of resurrection and of relationship and of being able to see his redeemer. It's two different views of reality. And I would suggest to you, if you take my view, that in fact we may not have friends as despicable as Job's friends. We have one who is, and that's ourselves that oftentimes we may in fact beat ourselves up for things we have done, particularly when difficult things happen in our lives. We're like, what have I done? And you go back and you, of course, there are things we've done that we're not proud of, things that we've done that were wrong. And it becomes a matter of calculation. Oh, that's why this is happening, because I did X, Y, and Z. And the idea of God, of a relationship, of grace, is conveniently shunted aside and we wander in a desert. There's no relationship. It's not personal. It's all math. It's all numbers. That's what we hear in Job's friends. And oftentimes that's what we hear in our own hearts. As John said, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. Heart can be very impersonal sometimes, which is ironic because we think of the heart as that's where the seat of the emotions. Either we go with Job's friends or we go with Job. Either we see the world as impersonal and God as someone who's so far away, so distant, and he is limited. God can only act in one way in my life. Or we can go with Job and be confused and despair at certain points even ride that emotional roller coaster but in the end say God is a God of all grace I'm in relationship with God I don't know what's going on right now I'm not understanding but this is I'm in a personal relationship with God and grace is evidence of that I'll go out on a limb here. But I would suggest to you that sometimes the person that we are most graceless with are ourselves. And we have forgotten that God has been gracious to us. God has shown his grace to us. We need to embrace that and say, I know that my Redeemer is alive and well and that he loves me. Let's pray together.
as hard as it is, Father, I think sometimes we prefer gracelessness. We prefer the impersonal calculation because grace cannot be calculated, cannot be measured. We can't get our minds around that. Why are you so gracious to us? Why have you been gracious? And so we prefer to beat ourselves up. We prefer to try to figure out why certain things have happened to us or are happening to us. And instead we should, like Job, say, I know that my Redeemer lives. And one day I will see him. One day I will be resurrected. And I will see the one who gave his life that I might have life. Teach us by your spirit to be gracious to ourselves. To embrace the forgiveness that we have been given. To revel in the grace that you show to us every day. To know that you love us. We are your children. Thank you for calling us together today to worship you. May your spirit be with us. May we have a sense of his presence as we walk through the world in this coming week. May your spirit and your grace go with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.